You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. Let's get into the news roundup. We're less than two weeks away from the midterms, and a lot of you have already voted. More than 35 states have started early voting, and more than 16 million people have already cast their ballot. So what could that mean for the results and for when we get them? We'll get into it, but first, some big news out of Silicon Valley. After promising to buy Twitter, then backing out, then getting sued, Elon Musk came full circle and actually purchased the social media giant. What will it mean for the self-proclaimed free speech absolutist to have control of the platform? Well, let's talk about it. With us, Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome back. Great to be back with you. Also with us, Laura Barron-Lopez, the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Laura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And David Lightman. He's the chief congressional correspondent with McClatchy Newspapers. David, it's always great to have you. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Twitter. Billionaire Elon Musk bought the social media giant for $44 billion. That's after months of uncertainty over the deal and a legal dispute with the company. Laura, how surprising is it that he actually went ahead with this purchase? Well, there was a lot of will he, won't he, a lot of complications all along the way since earlier this year. He said that he wanted to acquire Twitter, and then he tried to get out of it for a while. Um, but ultimately, it, it's clearly gone through. He's It's already chaotic at Twitter now in the immediate hours after he's taken over. There have been a slew of firings, including the CEO. And, you know, Musk immediately tweeted, quote, the bird is freed. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes on the platform, potentially ones uh, employees had been warning that could make it so Twitter is not necessarily safer in terms of the potential for hacks. So, again, the deal was finalized yesterday and we're already seeing this house cleaning. David, why do you think he's moving this quickly? Well, we're 10 days before an election, for one thing, and social media tends to blow up even more, especially in an election like this, which is often too close to call. Uh, What frightens a lot of people here is that he is answerable now to no one. He's taking the company private, so there are no shareholders to uh, answer to. He says he just wants to create a digital town hall. He says that he worries about the sort of balkanization of the Internet where you only have right-wing and left-wing Uh, social media. But again, uh, now that you have Twitter unchained, a lot of people fear a lot of misinformation is going to be out there. And uh, with only 10 days to go before an election, there may not be time to refute it. Yeah, well, Musk has long been a critic of these speech policies on Twitter, including the fact that the platform banned former President Donald Trump. It was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was was a mistake. because it, uh, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social. I think this could end up being, frankly, worse than having a sing- you know, single forum where everyone can debate. So, Anita, we're hearing sort of two messages from Musk. On one hand, he's saying this needs to be a free space. But as Laura said, he also wrote this message to Twitter advertising saying the platform, quote, cannot become a free for all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. So what message are you taking away from this? Yeah, we don't really know. I mean, it's it sounds like those two things conflict. I mean, I will say that, you know, Elon Musk, as he's talked about this over the months, has really talked about it despite that that 
message you just mentioned to advertisers had really talked about p- people having a place to go and and talk. He he criticized restrictions. He's talked mostly about that. So I think there are a lot of people at Twitter and around the country and really around the world that are sort of expecting that it will some of these guardrails will be off. Um, you know, as David mentioned, we have the U.S. elections. We also have other elections around the world, Brazil as well. And so there's a lot of people sort of paying attention to misinformation, disinformation. How is that? going to translate? And of course, the big question, you know, will Donald Trump come back? Of course, we don't know what that will mean if he does. He says he doesn't want to, uh, but people close to him don't don't believe that. So we don't really know what this is going to look like. And it's sort of going hour by hour, really. Laura, as you, you watch the run up to the midterm elections, and as we said, a lot of people have already cast their vote. We'll get into that a little later. But how concerned are you about the proliferation of mis- and disinformation if some of the guardrails come off this particular platform? Uh, Very concerned because uh, of the fact that, look, I mean, one of the biggest themes of this election is election denialism, which is based on a lie that there was, you know, widespread election fraud in 2020. Uh, And that's just not true. And it's been proven not true time and time again in multiple states. And yet 62 percent of the GOP nominees that are running are, are election deniers and um, a majority of the Republican voting base believes that lie that the former president has spread. So I think that it could be huge, uh, you know, if, if dynamics change on Twitter in the in the lead up to the election. But also, even if it doesn't, that is a big piece of this election. Dave, what do you think this means for American politics? Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, a lot of voters, arguably most voters, don't even start to pay attention to the political stuff until right about now. They're busy living their lives. That's why often you see these wild swings in polls or surges in polls in the last 10 days. The other thing is that the closer you get to Election Day and the crazier the information, the less chance there is to refute it. Uh, at papers I've worked for in the past, they, one of them had a rule that uh, beginning with the Sunday paper – no accusations, unless it's something you can really verify, like somebody had been charged criminally. But as of the Sunday paper, 48-hour rule, nothing. Well, here we are today, and somebody can put something out at 8 a.m. I wouldn't just say Twitter, though, is the potential culprit. I mean, the Internet, as you know, is basically an unchecked, unregulated uh, forum. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it'll be an interesting conversation in, in the months ahead, whether or not this, this shifts congressional action around whether or not to to regulate uh, the Internet in new ways. We'll, we'll see. In the meantime, we got this tweet from Terry who says, Musk is nothing but an oligarch trying to take over a major media arm called Twitter. He will control misinformation and disinformation. His effort must be stopped. Well, the company is sold, so we'll see what happens from here. Well, we're less than two weeks from midterm election day, and candidates are debating across the U.S. In Pennsylvania's Senate race, Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman faced off this week against Republican candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. Here's a man that spent more than $20 million of his own money to try to buy that seat. I'm running for the U.S. Senate because Washington keeps getting it wrong with extreme positions. I want to bring civility, balance, all the things that you want to see because you've been telling it to me on the campaign trail. And by doing that, we can bring us together in a way that has not been done of late. 
We heard there from Fetterman and Oz, respectively. The two clashed over abortion and the economy, among other partisan issues. Five months ago, Fetterman suffered a stroke, and it's a fact he addressed in the debate. Anita, what were your big takeaways here? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaways, there were a lot of people looking to see what Fetterman was like um, during a debate. This is the only debate. Um, you did mention his health issues. He has said that doctors have cleared him uh, to serve and that he's fit to serve. But there were a lot of people sort of watching what 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 it was like. Could he answer the questions, what that speech was like? And of course, you know, Dr. Oz, uh, Oz didn't really uh, talk about that very much, but the campaign has suggested that he's not healthy enough uh, to serve as senator. So, uh, you know, that was a, a big issue um, in the debate. Moderators sort of pressed Fetterman to pledge to release his full medical records, um, and he uh, didn't really, he declined to commit and basically just said he's fit to serve. So I think that was one of the biggest issues sort of hanging out over this debate and this race. Laura, what are you watching? Well, I think really quickly, just one thing on the the Fetterman-Oz debate, you know, David may be even able to add to the examples that I'm thinking of, but I covered Senator Mark Kirk in Congress, Mm -hmm. and he is a stroke survivor. um, And he had the stroke right after he won his election. He was recovering for a year. And a much more severe stroke, I think, uh, you know, medical experts would say than Fetterman's. It took him a long time to recover. He still came back. I mean, I covered him. He was mentally, you know, intact, uh, a a very intelligent senator or Republican from Illinois. And so there's a lot. There's two stroke survivors right now currently in the Senate, Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico and Senator uh, Van Hollen of Maryland. So this is not something that is unheard of in terms of lawmakers having these, you know, devastating um, health issues and then coming back to actually serve in the Senate. David, anything to add? Yeah. um, It used to be we said people didn't vote strategy because people don't know who controls what. But I think this year may be different. And this is the question in the Fetterman-Oz race, in the Georgia Senate race, Nevada, the three we're watching most closely. Are people going to vote for the candidate or the party? Mm -hmm. And if they're voting for the party, then that's a whole different dynamic, which we can get into if you like. Well, let's do that after the break. (laughs) First, we want to give you this update. Uh, Drew Hamill is spokesman for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Earlier this morning, an assailant broke into the Pelosi home in San Francisco, and Mr. Pelosi was assaulted. The speaker was not in San Francisco at the time. They shared this. The speaker and her family are grateful to the first responders and medical professionals involved and request privacy at this time. Mr. Pelosi was taken to the hospital. He's receiving medical care. He's expected to make a full recovery. We'll continue to update you on that story. Follow it at your local NPR station or at NPR.org. We've got a lot more news to cover, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Box Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. Do you realize how many synthetic materials are in the clothes on your back and feet right now? That's why Smartwool is committed to sustainability, using natural, responsibly sourced merino wool in their gear and recycled materials in their packaging. Enjoy 15% off your first order of base layers, socks, and accessories at smartwool.com. Okay, let's keep going with the debates. This week, New York Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul and Republican Representative Lee Zeldin faced off in that state's gubernatorial debate. I'm here for one reason, to save our state. 
and deliver a safer, freer, better future for you and your family. We've experienced on so many levels attacks on our wallets, our safety, our freedom, your children's education. You will see a great contrast here tonight between myself and my record and someone who has been called one of Donald Trump's strongest and most loyal supporters. He helped him on January 6th by supporting it with the overturn of an, turning of an election. He sent text messages trying to orchestrate the big lie. David, any big takeaways here? Yeah. Um, in the debate, Congressman Zeldin emphasized crime uh, over and over, talked about gangs, talked about Democrats aren't doing enough. That's a theme that Republicans are using throughout the country. I was out in California. We did some voter forums, and crime came up constantly. And we would say, have you been a victim of crime? And most people said no, but their neighbor's car was broken into, or I see the tents uh, somehow equating homelessness with crime. Uh, they, they're scared. They ride the subway and they see strange people. They think it may be out of control. And this is a huge motivator. And Congressman Zeldin jumped right on that. <laughs> I, I just want to focus in on something you said. You said they ride the subway and see strange people. What does that mean? Who are these strange people they're saying? I don't know. But this is what, you know, uh, I guess people they think of as a threat. Okay. I don't know. People mumbling to themselves or who knows what. But I'm telling you, people are scared. It not, it's not necessarily uh, grounded in reason. But people are scared. And uh, look, if uh, we just talked about Speaker Pelosi's husband, my goodness, if that home could be broken into, (laughs) people might say... Laura, go ahead. Yeah, no, I would just add that uh, to David's point, uh, it, it is a motivator, but it's more of a motivator for the Republican base. I mean, the a recent Gallup poll that just came out this week found that 73 percent of Republicans say that crime has risen in their area compared to 42 percent of Democrats. You know, and independents fall about in the middle, which is like 50 percent of independents agree with that sentiment. So it, it uh, notably Across the board, 56% of U.S. adults say that they are worried about an increase in crime, and that is that that concern has increased since last year. So it's definitely something that Republicans are trying to seize on in addition to immigration to try to motivate their base. Anita, how are Democrats trying successfully or unsuccessfully to push back on that messaging? Yeah, I mean, there are a variety of messages that they've had. I mean, Hochul herself has talked about her opponent as sort of a a Trump Republican, you know, a MAGA Republican. And we've seen candidates, Democratic candidates all across the country sort of trying to tie some of these Republicans to Trump. That's worked, you know, that's going to work in some places, not others, obviously. And it's working sometimes, of course, uh, you know, the big sort of one of the big issues that Democrats had thought um, would really work for them was the change in, you know, the Supreme Court decision on uh, abortion earlier this summer. Uh, That had a lot of Democrats very activated and energized to try to, you know, get more folks to the polls, to try to change uh, both, not just on the federal level, but state level, local level, to try to change, uh, you know, uh, you know, get Republicans out and put Democrats in. And it, and it did seem like that there was some enthusiasm. But as the months have gone on, that sort of has dissipated. That is not as much of a motivating factor some of the polls show. So, uh, you know, they've, they've worked hard to energize uh, voters, but some of those things are working and and some not so much. Laura, does this fear resonate with crime statistics when we look at them, you know, more holistically over time? Um, 
you know, I, I mean, honestly, like, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that this is something that Democrats, you know, are are definitely trying to show that they're addressing. President Biden has tried to show that. You know, he's gone to New York multiple times. He stood next to New York Mayor Eric Adams, who has been, uh, you know, tougher on crime, who has tried to align himself with police. Biden himself has aligned himself with police on multiple occasions, you know, to the dismay of some progressive Democrats. Um, But I, I think that, you know, Right now, again, not to repeat myself, but basically this is something midterm elections are all about turning out your base, uh, much more so than presidential elections. And this is something that Republicans really are hoping, in addition to the economy, can get their base numbers up. Mm -hmm. Democrats, I'm not quite sure that crime is something that would actually motivate their base. I know that we're probably going to get to an abortion, and I hope we do, because I think that that's one of the biggest issues in this midterm election cycle. Anita, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely trying to turn the page and not talk about crime and immigration. Uh, Democrats have, as I mentioned, these other issues that they hope will resonate. But I think the thing is, is the, the biggest issue is the one we really haven't talked about, which is when you look at the more recent polls, it's about the economy. It's what David mentioned, you know, earlier when he was talking to voters. I think when you talk to people out there in the country, a lot of them are focused on the economy. They're focused on inflation. They're talking about how they're going to the grocery store and, and the prices have risen. And so, you know, obviously you've seen the president and Democrats try uh, to win on that issue, it, it looks like from the polls that Republicans really are. So I do think that there's a variety of issues back and forth, definitely crime and immigration on the Republican side, definitely abortion on the Democratic side. But it does seem like really in these last few days going into the election that it's about the economy, it's about inflation, it's about prices. Well, David, it's interesting because inflation is one of those things that economists will tell you a president really doesn't have a lot of control over. And this is a global issue right now. So how effective are Democrats able to send that message? Not very effectively, uh, because as you say, it's really, uh, we could discuss the dynamics of inflation all day, but the Federal Reserve Board in many ways holds the key there. Uh, it's not just inflation. It's what it. It's fear. Crime fits into this. Prices. Every time people drive down the street and see gasoline prices going up, they worry things are sort of spiraling out of control, and that's that's a killer for politicians. Now, the flip side, as you all have said, is if Democrats can somehow convince their base that hey, women's rights, women's right to choose is threatened, seriously. You better get out there and vote. Maybe that can counter hmm. this fear. On, on abortion, I just wanted to go back to something Anita said. She said, like, as the months have gone on, that, that the motivation around abortion has dissipated. I haven't found that. I don't think that that's, you know, the polling, I think, again, we saw the generic ballot last week. It was favoring Republicans. This week, it's favoring Democrats. You know, there's only so much you can take out of that. I was talking to this uh, older woman in Pennsylvania, this voter that I've kept in touch with over the years. She voted for Trump in 2016. She voted for Biden in 2020. Um, And she said that abortion is really her big issue. She's not happy about the economy, uh, but she doesn't necessarily blame Biden because she's like, this is uh, inflation is a problem all across the globe. And that she has a 16-year-old granddaughter who is not going to have the same rights she had. And she said that there are, you know, this is one anecdote, but that there are uh, eight other women that she knows in her community who are going to vote for Democrats because of the road decision. 
and that they aren't going to tell their husbands. Hmm. So I think there's something that, you know, we talk all the time about uh, Trump voters getting missed in polls. And that's why polls haven't totally been all reliable in the Trump era. There could very well be this like silent abortion voter because they don't really want to talk to their husbands about it. They are very upset about the road decision. And, and even inherently, this issue is a very private, you know, issue. Right. And, and we'll be watching not just uh, who, which candidates people are voting for, but abortion is on several ballots as well, whether it should be protected um, in state constitutions. And we saw the outcome in Kansas, which I think a lot of people were surprised by. Well, let's touch on one more debate. On Monday, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis faced off against Democratic candidate, former governor and current congressman Charlie Crist. You talk about Joe Biden a lot. I understand. You think you're going to be running against him. I can see how you might get confused. But you're running for governor. You're running for governor. And I have a question for you. You're running for governor. Why don't you look in the eyes of the people of the state of Florida and say to them, if you're reelected, you will serve a full four-year term as governor. Yes or no? Yes or no, Ron? Will you serve a full four-year term if you're reelected governor of Florida? It's not a tough question. Laura, how likely is a future run for DeSantis? (laughs) I think, I mean, DeSantis has not hidden the fact that he wants to run. So uh, I think that he is definitely going to probably run in 2024 and attempt to take on former President Trump. And we'll see how well that goes, because uh, I also think that, you know, former President Trump is forecasting that he's going to jump in. And clearly, you know, uh, Trump is going to Florida to Uh, rally with Senator Marco Rubio. And it's a very overt snub of DeSantis that he is not going to be appearing with him. And it's clearly intentional because he's trying to send DeSantis a signal that if you, you know, I am aware of the fact that you're trying to come for me. Hmm. I wonder if this plays back into what you said earlier, David, about people voting for candidates or voting for their party. How do you think that's playing out here? Well, obviously, DeSantis knows people are going to vote Republican. They like what he's doing. But the thing about DeSantis, and you see this with others, there's certain telltale signs that we reporters look for that people are interested in the White House. Not saying you'll serve out a full term is a pretty good sign. Also, his war chest is a pretty good sign. We cover um, Governor Newsom in California who says no, in, you know, he's not interested. He is going to serve his full term. But he's running ads in Florida and Texas and, you know, he's he's taking on the fight and the insiders are all saying, oh, this is great. Somebody's finally slugging away. So, again, you look for these little hints and, boy, they're dropping them like crazy. Yeah, some of them aren't so, aren't so little. <laughs> right. well, let's take a step back and take a look at early voting, which is now underway in over 35 states. More than 16 million Americans have voted early so far, roughly a number roughly on par with 2018 midterms. Uh, that's according to the University of Florida's U.S. Elections Project. Anita, overall turnout is expected to be higher than usual this year. We talked about some of these issues in the midterm elections. I mean, what do you think is really driving people to the ballot box? Yeah, they're they're signaling, experts are sort of saying the numbers signal that it could meet or exceed the 2018 uh, midterm, which I believe was a record. So, you know, there are people looking at this saying sort of it, th- people are more interested as time goes on, you know, meaning eight, 2018 was uh, a high level and, and, and perhaps people are just getting more interested. I mean, I do think 
that some of the issues that we've talked about have made people interested. We've talked about inflation and the economy. We've also talked about abortion. I think both of those things have get, you know garnered a lot of interest. I think President Trump, even though he's not on the ballot, still gets a lot of interest. You know, there are people that want to vote uh, for him or against him, even though he's not on there. So voting for or against his party. And I think there are, uh, you know, these last few years have just seemed to be there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of things going on. And I think a lot of people have just really stayed interested in what in what's going on. Laura, we know in Georgia, turnout is tracking higher than 2018. Mm-hmm. What's happening in that state? Yeah, I mean, Georgia, along with a lot of other of these key battleground states, the numbers look like they're going to hit 2018. One thing in particular that I'm watching is young voters. Mm. So 18 to 29 year olds or even a little older like myself in your 30s, uh, you know, how they're turning out right now. There was a Harvard poll just out this week and they are turning out in numbers that are rivaling 2018, which was a high record mark for millennials and Gen Z. And, you know, they've been pivotal in a lot of races. They were pivotal in Georgia in uh, 2020 and also in the runoff. And they, you mentioned Kansas uh, earlier, they were also really key in that Kansas abortion ballot measure. So, um, you know, I've been talking to some strategists about if if they think Democrats are going to reach those thresholds. Basically, you know, again, it's about turnout. And if youth voters reach 2018 numbers, they're feeling pretty good in states like Georgia. Um, If if they reach the threshold with black voters in Georgia, because, again, I know we've talked about sometimes about how Republicans have tried to uh, make inroads with black voters. But all the data shows that over the past three decades, black voters overwhelmingly, including black men, overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. So even though their uh, Republicans have increased the number of black candidates that they have this time around in the 2020 midterm cycle, the likelihood that they're going to make any significant inroads with black voters, uh, I'm very skeptical of. Well, we heard from Meg in Cincinnati, who says, my husband, whom I call a recovering Republican, is angry. He has never voted straight ticket in his life, but feels he has no choice but to vote straight blue ticket. We have a 15-year-old daughter, and we fear for her safety. We both voted early in person. I, I want to turn now to Arizona and Nevada. They're both moving forward with plans to hand count their ballots. The counties in question are Cochise County in Arizona and Nye County in Nevada. David, why? What's happening? Nobody trusts anybody. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that. And if this thing is close, uh, this could go on through the courts through, well, Congress is supposed to convene January 3rd or 4th next year. I could see a situation where that seat's empty or contested or Again, uh, both sides think that the other is up to something. Is this, so. is this solely a hand a hand count, or are they also using machines? I don't know. In in Nye County, Nevada, so over the summer, it, it you know it was Republicans who voted for this to be a hand count. It was not Democrats, and even the original Republican county clerk uh, was very upset, and she ended up resigning because of the fact that she couldn't fight back against these election lies. All of this. Mm-hmm came from the fact that the former president was saying that the 2020 election was stolen in both of these counties, in uh, Nevada and in Arizona. And now the one in Nevada is being halted because the the Nevada Supreme Court late last night said that it's illegal. 
So the Secretary of State there said you have to stop with this hand count. They're going to have to go back to voting machines. But in Arizona, they are going to continue with the hand count. Now, the issue with hand counting is that, you know, basically it's less reliable and it could delay results. And that could also cause even more of this misinformation to spread. Well, after the break, we'll touch on some of the hundreds of lawsuits casting doubt on the results for the midterm elections that have already been filed. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's jump back to our discussion of some of the week's biggest headlines. We were talking about Arizona and Nevada and this move to hand count ballots for the midterm elections. Lauren, what do we need to understand about what this means for election officials in that state, in those states? Right. So as I mentioned there, because of this, because of this push based on the election lies to hand count ballots because of the, the distrust that that sowed about the process, a lot of election officials, including one in Nevada, have resigned, you know, including Republican election officials, people who have worked and manned the, you know, who have been county clerks for decades. And so I spoke this week to this uh, former Michigan director of elections, and I'm about to head to Michigan, and he is now a senior advisor to the Detroit city clerk. And he talked about all these very scary things about how after the 2020 election, all these election officials were harassed, they were threatened, some had to move out of their homes temporarily, you know, they, some even, he said, train their kids to take a grab bag and jump, jump out of a window if people, you know, approach their houses and tried to to come after them. And basically, he is very concerned about the election lies being repeated over and over again, even about we see Republican candidates lying about the potential for fraud this election, uh, you know, looking to 2024. And the fact that over time, it'll maybe slow, but over time, uh, a denigration of administering of elections and the fact that so many of these people who have this experience are resigning and what that ultimately does to the election system. Well, less than two weeks from the midterms, a hundred lawsuits casting doubt on the results have already been filed, mostly by Republicans in those suits target rules over early and mail-in voting, voting machines, voting registration. Anita, this is the most election-specific litigation the U.S. has ever seen ahead of the actual election it pertains to. What are these lawsuits based on? Yeah, this is just a, it's a change. I mean, there's definitely always been lawsuits associated with elections in in recent years. And obviously in the, you know, the Bush-Gore presidential race, that, that was a lawsuit that was filed. And I think there were a lot more filed after that. So in the last 20 years or so. But we definitely have seen the last year or two, many more. And that's because, you know, of course, we had the whole issue with the 2020 election, with the allegations that uh, were not proven of fraud. So that was, you know, people already filing lawsuits, Republicans filing lawsuits. Uh, We saw that. What we've seen since the 2020 election is that in states, uh, many state legislatures have passed uh, additional um, restrictions, uh, not all restrictions, but mostly restrictions on uh, laws, voting laws in, in a number of states, probably half the states. So, you know, we're seeing the preemptive uh, lawsuits. Generally, you see some after that people are disputing, but but it's been everything, redistricting, uh, voting hours, recounts, things trying to get ahead of it to, to uh, get a leg up, basically, in the election Uh, before the election even starts. David, what do you think all this says about 
the current political landscape, but also what's to come? Glad you, I'm glad you asked that question. I think you have to look at this from 30,000 feet, if you will. And I think if Democrats do better than expected, one of the storylines, I think, and I think the polls will bear this out, is that people are scared that somehow democracy is in peril. And uh, Democrats are pushing that line of thinking, and it's hard to judge so far just how far that goes. But I think that's a real fear that uh, we're saying election officials uh, are feeling intimidated. They're not going to do this. If you look at a lot of these races for people who control the elections in different states, a lot of election deniers in 2020 uh, are doing well. Again, if somehow they're thwarted, that's a bigger story. Uh, All this leads to 2024. And if we can't count on the integrity of elections, go back to what Anita was saying on Bush versus Gore. For all the controversy, and that was a tense month while we waited for the Supreme Court decision. But once the five to four decision was out, most people, including Al Gore, accepted it. I wonder if today that scenario would play out again. But it's interesting, Laura, because when when we talk to election officials, Republican and Democratic, they say the last election was safe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It was free. It was fair. It was organized. And yet, and yet, this idea of it being this chaotic mess continues to to resonate with certain voters. And and. Where is the breakdown? Is it is it just that you have a party that continues to feed into this fear for its base and, and the other narrative just isn't breaking through? I mean, why not? I, I, you cannot, um, I guess, ask any of those questions and ignore the fact that Republican leaders, by and large, have gone along with former President Trump's election lies. He has repeated them over and over and over again at every campaign stop that he has gone on, where he has uh, endorsed and been seen next to these election deniers, the ones that are running for Secretary of State in Nevada, running for Secretary of State in Arizona, running for gubernatorial in Arizona. You know, all of these positions that would ultimately have an impact on or be a part of the process for certifying the presidential election. If, you know, there are only a handful of Republicans that are being very loud, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger's of the world, about the fact that this is a lie, that the last election was completely safe, one of the safest elections that we've had in our country. The next one is most likely to be that way, too. Uh, And yet, Again, a majority of the Republican base believes that the last election was stolen and that President Biden is an illegitimate president. Why do they believe that? Because the elected officials that they are going to see on the campaign stump or the candidates that are running for the Republican Party, by and large, are either flirting with, outright embracing, or just, you know, being complicit in this lie continuing to be spread. And it's important to note that it also happened during a global a global pandemic. Right. We had that election during a global pandemic. We got this comment from Kim who says, I think you're missing a big motivator for interest in midterm voting. My small Indiana town is being torn apart by people trying to overthrow the school board and put candidates who have no experience but are being supported by outside PAC groups like Parents for Accountability. We have a great school system that continually updates itself. What are they so afraid of? Hey, David, what do you think about 
the down ballot races. We talk about things a lot from that national perspective. But yeah, there are a lot of local elections that are also on the ballot this year. Yeah. uh, One of the uh, postmortems of every election, particularly midterm elections, is to look at those down ballot races. Uh, Years ago, we would look at state legislatures, for example, to see how they had shaped up. Republicans in particular, uh, back in the early 2000s, put a lot of money and resources into trying to win state legislative seats. Why? Because the legislatures control redistricting in most states, and redistricting means more members of Congress, and you can follow that along. Now it's the school boards where this is this ideological battle that's taking place. Somehow, after the election, I think we need to look at all this and figure out if there's a national trend here, a statewide trend, who's behind it, who, where the money is behind it. Now, we're looking at some of that now. Don't get me wrong. But there's something bigger and broader happening here. Mm. Laura, I know you've been talking to voters. What are you hearing? About school boards in particular? Yeah, those down-ballot races. I think that, look, they they are incredibly important. And again, you know, when you mentioned the fact that people are running that are not experienced, that's people that are running that are not experienced for school board, people that are trying to fill these, um, you know, city, county clerks positions that are not experienced. You know, Vice News even had this uh, piece about the fact that uh, someone who was not a coroner, was, who has no experience being a coroner, no medical experience, was running because it was an elected uh, position in Colorado running to be the coroner in Colorado. So um, this is something that is happening across the board. I think it speaks to the fact of misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories, again, becoming so prolific across the country, particularly among a segment of voters, and that that they're embracing basically the lack of expertise. Mm. Is Is there the chance that some of these efforts, you know, we've been talking about a lot about misinformation, disinformation, that some of this could could backfire for people who are pushing these narratives forward, that if people, for instance, don't trust the election system they're supposed to rely on, if they look at these candidates and say, oh, I don't trust these people with these roles. Well, we saw, you know, in 2020, when former President Trump started attacking mail ballots, uh, that that that, you know, hasn't necessarily helped Republicans. I mean, in states where Republicans actually either really promoted mail-in balloting or absentee balloting, and now, uh, you know, that a lot of Republican voters don't vote that way uh, as often anymore. So that could certainly backfire on them. I mean, again, just to go back to to that, what I mentioned about the coroner, the one who had no medical expertise ended up losing. So we do see in some cases like this, uh, where it certainly could potentially hurt them. Um, you know, in the Nevada Secretary of State race with Jim Marchant, uh, among the Republican base, he's doing well by spreading election lies. But again, um, you know, it's it doesn't... It, he may very well, and it could backfire on him because of the fact that a lot of, I think, Nevada voters uh, don't want to go with someone who could very well change the election system based on that. David, your thoughts? It all goes back to what I was saying before about fear. You People tend to vote their self-interest, and right now the self-interest is most heightened with the economy, crime, but there's also this fear that the system that America's relied on for 200-some years could be crumbling. And we don't know how much of a motivator that is. But my gut says, having talked to voters, particularly out west, it's a big motivator. And I think a bigger motivator than we realize right now. Anita, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it definitely there is, uh, as David said, there is that fear. It's just when you talk to people, you talk to voters, it's just sort of like, oh, everything's 
everything's bad right now, right? They kind of lump all these things together. I, I will go back to what the, what the uh, person who wrote in said about uh, local elections. I think one of the issues that's really resonating out in the country that we haven't talked about so much, but this person has sort of indicated is a lot of things about education, right? I think that the pandemic brought that on, the idea of masks in school and closings in schools. And and now we're also seeing, you know, our books being banned and what's the curriculum and what's the, what are the regulations and rules sur- surrounding, uh, you know, uh, students and gender identity. So we are seeing a whole, uh, you know, another issue sort of crop up out there uh, in the country that uh, has really, we've seen some success in some races. I mean, you saw the governor, the new governor in Virginia uh, run on that issue and with some success. I mean, he's in the governor's mansion now. So uh, we are seeing different things. And and there are a lot of people sort of, as David has said, that kind of push all these things together and just sort of have this pessimistic attitude. Well, we'll have lots to watch in the next two weeks. That's Anita Kumar, the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Also with us today, Laura Barone Lopez, the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and David Lightman, chief congressional correspondent with McClatchy Newspapers. Thanks to you all. And before we go, a remembrance. I think I'm kind of jealous. Wish I had a handsome man visiting me at work. Well, well, well. <laughs> this week, America lost one of its most iconic voices. So did you hear the one where the guy got the clown to deliver flowers to his wife? He wanted to make sure that it was a romantic gesture. <laughs> Jester! <laughs> Leslie Jordan died Monday after a car crash in Hollywood, California. He began his acting career in the late 80s in a string of television shows. He later joined the cast of Will and Grace and brought to life one of his most memorable characters, the snarky Beverly Leslie. Karen Walker, just breaks my heart that you don't have a partner for the spotlight dance. However will you lead it without a partner? Such a pity a bottle of rum can't waltz. Jordan became an internet sensation at the start of the pandemic. Many in isolation found his web videos relatable. Here he is talking to Entertainment Tonight Canada about his internet fame. I just stumbled into it. I started, I was home in Tennessee and I was bored and wasn't a lot going on. And I think I talked about what people were really feeling. Like I would say, this is awful. You know, we're stuck in our houses. What are we going to do? I'm so bored. Among the jokes and witty observations, Jordan also shared anecdotes about growing up gay in Chattanooga, Tennessee. One of those stories involves him as a toddler. When I was three years old, I asked Santa Claus to bring me a bride doll. I was sitting on his lap at the Lubman's department store. My daddy was with all his army buddies. It might have embarrassed him. So he told mother, no bride doll. When he woke up on Christmas, the doll was waiting for him under the tree. 1958, my lieutenant colonel of a daddy scoured Chattanooga, Tennessee, and found his beautiful son, the most beautiful bride doll. Leslie Jordan was 67. When the storms of life surround me, when the skies turn gray, when my heart feels lost and lonely and I'm sore afraid, I will lay me down. 
You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll be back to discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the globe in just a moment. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. Long and rough my road has been Companions have been We're rounding up the biggest stories from around the globe. Joining us this week, David Rennie from The Economist. David is the magazine's Beijing bureau chief, and he's in China. David, it's great to have you back. Hello. And in studio here in Washington, D.C., Greg Myrie. Greg covers national security for NPR. Greg, it's great to have you. Good to be here, Jen. Well, let's start with what Russia's leaders have been saying this week about the war in Ukraine. On Thursday, President Putin denied that he was preparing to use nuclear weapons, but this came hours after he was filmed looking at Russia's first nuclear drill since the invasion. Greg, these remarks came as part of his annual foreign policy speech, but tell us more about what President Putin had to say, and is he trying to set a certain tone here? Well, yes, indeed. As, as one of my NPR colleagues said, uh, consider this the Russian version of your grumpy uncle at Thanksgiving. Putin went on for four hours yesterday going over this list of grievances. And, and as you said, he, you know, this sort of mixed message. He's watching these annual Russian nuclear drills. So they do this every year. They warned the U.S. that they were going to be doing this. So no surprises there. Um, he also said it doesn't make sense to use a nuclear weapon um, in Ukraine. But on the other hand, he sort of doubled down that Ukraine might be preparing a so-called dirty bomb where you use a conventional weapon but include radioactive material like plutonium. So Putin is is kind of all over the place here. And I think a big part of what he is doing is is trying to scare or sow fear um, in Ukraine and in the West. Um, But a lot of the experts I've talked to still think the probability of Russia using a nuclear weapon is still quite low. Well, let's hear from Andre Kellen. On Wednesday, he spoke to CNN's Christiane Amanpour, and this is Russia's ambassador to the UK. Are you saying that your country yeah. has pledged, yes, yes. your defense minister, yes. not to use uh, nuclear weapons? Yes. yes, this is what I'm saying, and this is what has been said by defense minister, by our president, and all of that. As you know, President Putin has made veiled threats. Now, the West has seen no movement in Russia's nuclear posture, yeah. But again, you're saying it is off the table. Yes. Okay, David, stand those comments up against what we heard from President Putin. What should the West believe? Well, there's an element of kind of the mafia boss saying, you know, nice restaurant, shame if something happened to it. You know, that, that, that's the way that Vladimir Putin likes to make these threats. And it's always about kind of all of the blame is on the other side. And yet he's willing to show that he is willing to stop at nothing if needs be. And clearly... As the Russian defense minister placed a series of calls to uh, the defense ministers of big Western powers uh, a few days ago with this kind of totally unfounded claim that Ukraine might be allowed to launch uh, a radioactive bomb, as, as Greg said, the fear is that he was hinting that this could be used by Russia to cover up some kind of small scale tactical strike in Ukraine, or at least kind of sow confusion. I think how you need to frame not just these latest sort of acts of nuclear brinksmanship and then the kind of denial that they ever said such a thing, this classic kind of confusion that they like to sow. The way to frame that, and as well as, as, as Craig says, you know, the kind of the grumpy uncle speech full of grievances, there's two things going on here. There's a war between Russia and Ukraine, and that has not been going well one-on-one 
uh, for Russia. And that's not been going well because of all the help being given overwhelmingly by the Americans, but also other Europeans and Western powers. And so Putin needs to do two things. He needs to continue fighting that war against Ukraine. But above all, to have a chance of getting what he wants, he has to divide the West and stop the West from being united in delivering help to Ukraine and sanctions that are crushing the Russian economy. And so a large part of what sounded so weird in that Putin speech in Moscow, uh, where he talked about, you know, gay rights parades and how he wasn't against the Western people, as long as they were good traditional Christians, uh, he doesn't like it. What he doesn't like is Western cosmopolitan elites pushing these weird agendas about kind of transgender rights. All of that is because Putin is watching the West and he is looking for the fishes and he sees Tucker Carlson on Fox News in the States uh, being very hostile to the idea of uh, continuing this aid to Ukraine. So he thinks, okay, if I can pull off the far right in America or the kind of conservative, kind of Christian conservatives, then I can divide that wedge. He's constantly trying to push wedges in Europe. Uh, that's why he's using weapons, uh, economic weapons, like the, sort of the energy supplies to Europe mm -hmm. to try and spike energy prices into places like Germany because he thinks he can pull Western Europe away from Eastern Europe. So he's, he needs to divide the West. So there is a kind of method to his weirdness uh, because it's all about trying to find fissures, fissures and, and drive wedges because if he's up against a united West and it carries on as it has for the first eight months of this war, he's not going to win. Well, I'm curious, Greg, when you hear those competing messages from President Putin and from members of his leadership, does that reveal to you any fissures within Russia? Or, or because you would you would expect that they would sort of speak with a united voice, but that's not what we're really hearing. Well, there, there, certainly there are some divisions in Russia. Um, throughout the war, we've seen pretty strong support and, and certainly a, a vocal sort of blogger community there that wants Putin to go even harder. So if, if Putin is feeling pressure or any sense of division, it's that he should push harder, use more powerful weapons. Uh, take the gloves off, go after civilians to an even higher degree. So that's where Putin is getting the pressure from. He's not, there's no real sense that he's getting pressure from anti-war demonstrators. Um, however, the, the mobilization of these troops is making the, the, the war hit home in a way it didn't before. A lot of people might have been indifferent or mildly supportive. Now it might be people they know are being called up out of civilian life and being sent there. So I, Putin is definitely feeling some pressure, I think, in, in slightly different ways. But again, just to wrap up uh, what David said, I, I think because it's not going well on the battlefield, he's looking for things he can do outside the battlefield, use this energy weapon by knocking out the Ukrainian energy grid. Hopefully that Europe will run short of energy this fall. Uh, make these scary threats about nuclear weapons or a dirty bomb. Maybe that'll touch off another uh, civilian refugee exodus from Ukraine. So he, as David said, is trying to to, to drive wedges and create fissures. Well, meanwhile, Ukraine's government asked refugees living abroad not to return until spring, and this advice seems to be tied to fears that the country won't be able to cope this winter because of, because of its damaged energy grid. What do we know about the current state of the country's energy infrastructure, Greg? So uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky said recently, since Russia started these up. Uh, these, these attacks on uh, heating and power plants, 
Um, so about a week ago, he said this first week of Russian attacks had knocked out about 30% of Ukraine's uh, energy grid. There have been rolling blackouts in, in cities around the country. The Ukrainian government has asked people to conserve as much power as possible. You're now seeing pictures at night where all the lights have gone out, um, either, either voluntarily or because of a power cut. Um, it's hard. Often the Russians are hitting like these substations, not necessarily a main power station. These apparently are, are more difficult and, and, and because there's so many of them for the Ukrainians to keep repairing them as fast as the Russians are taking them out. So this poses real potential problems uh, for civilians in a way we haven't seen as the weather's been nice and mild. Uh, the winter is coming. It's getting cold fast. Uh, w there, there have been reports that, that the Ukrainians are voluntarily cutting back pretty dramatically, and this has reduced the the uh, the amount of outages. This is going to be a problem all winter, though. David, briefly, what does this mean for people who will not be able to return home because of, of, the, of this energy issue? Of course, the numbers are stunning. I mean, the reason that it would make a difference for refugees not to go back uh, before the spring, which is the request from the Deputy Prime Minister, is that of the 44 million population of Ukraine, uh, nearly 8 million of them are now abroad. Uh, and so it, it really does make a difference if they don't go back. And as, as Greg says, you know, winter is coming and uh, the Russian forces are pounding uh, the electrical grids, the energy supplies time and again uh, with cruise missiles, but also with these drones uh, that are clearly being supplied by Iran, although Iran denies it. In some cases, they're sort of destroyed just days after they've been fixed. And one of the problems is that the, the Ukraine uses a lot of ex-Soviet Union equipment. It's very old. Some European countries in East Europe were saying that the, their oldest kind of spare parts from pre-Soviet days, from the Soviet days, but everyone's running out of these these parts and they don't have modern equipment to slot into the Ukrainian grid. So it's, it is a targeting civilians. Uh, it's yet another war crime being committed by Russia, but the suffering of the Ukrainian people, Vladimir Putin has shown again and again, he could not care less. Well, I want to turn now to WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's currently serving a nine-year prison sentence for drug possession in Russia. A Russian court rejected an appeal of that sentence. U.S. officials are still hopeful that a prisoner swap between Moscow and Washington can be arranged. Greg, what, if anything, might incentivize Russia to broker a deal right now? Well, it's actually kind of hard to see at the moment. Putin knows he's got a very valuable bargaining chip. Um, he doesn't have a lot of great chips or great cards to play right now. Brittany Griner and another American, Paul Whelan, who, who's been in prison for about three years, um, these are two really good cards he has. He's not going to give them away easily or lightly. He sees that it makes the Biden administration, administration squirm, that there's American pressure to, to try to get her out. So I would not expect him to do this quickly or easily. Um, however, there, there could be a point when he thinks it is to his advantage. Russia and Ukraine are trading prisoners of war. So it's, it's possible, but it's not looking likely at the moment. That's Greg Myrie. He covers national security for NPR. Greg, I know we need to let you go, but thanks for joining us. And let's welcome back Joyce Karam. Joyce is a senior correspondent for The National. Joyce, thanks for being here. Good to be with you, Jen. Let's turn to Iran. On Wednesday, thousands converged to memorialize Masa Amini in her hometown of Saqqez. The gathering marked 40 days since her death while in police custody, an event that has spurred countrywide demonstrations against the Iranian government. Joyce, what happened in Saqqez on Wednesday and across the rest of Iran? 
Uh, no, truly, what we're witnessing, uh, Jen, is a defining moment, uh, historic moments that are happening in, in Iran. What happened on uh, Tuesday is we saw thousands and thousands uh, of mourners uh, uh, flood to her town to uh, commemorate the 40 days uh, since her death in uh, Iranian police uh, custody for improperly wearing her uh, hijab. Uh, they they came out despite uh, threats to her family, despite uh, a heavy crackdown uh, from uh, from the government uh, in Iran. Uh, what, what we're seeing, I mean, the magnitude and the uh, and the courage of uh, those Iranians is truly remarkable. I mean, they're braving uh, bullets, arrests, intimidation uh, from a regime that you know uh, very well has a history uh, of being relentless in suppressing uh, dissent. Uh, the other thing about uh, these protests uh, that I think is worth highlighting is the diversity uh, of those that are taking uh, to the streets. It's men, it's women, it's young, old, urban, uh, middle class, uh, blue collar, uh, ruler, uh, elite, non-elite. Uh, they're all coming out uh, in different cities uh, and towns of, uh, uh, of the country under the slogan of woman, uh, life, uh, freedom. I mean, this is pretty significant and I'm not sure uh, the Iranian regime has uh, an idea or a, a, a clear uh, a clear path on how to uh, respond uh, to the protests. Uh, in so far, the response has been, you know, the the traditional playbook: mm. uh, arrests and uh, violence. But it's not it's not working. Mm. If the regime changes its hijab policy to make it non-mandatory, uh, it would be striking uh, one of the main pillars of the Islamic uh, revolution. If it doesn't. Then you know what we're seeing now will will just will only uh, continue because these these people this is a this feels like a turning point uh, in Iranian uh, society, uh, but we really still don't know where it's gonna end or what it's gonna take to. Joyce, you mentioned Masa Amini's family uh, getting threats. Are those threats coming from the Iranian government? Uh, yes, what we've seen is Iranian authorities, security, um, and uh, uh, the besiege, the, the the force that cracks down on the protesters. They've been uh, active in threatening uh, families, not just Mahsa Amini, uh, but other uh, young women who died. Uh, somewhere, uh, you know, one family, one in one instance, her family had to come out on state TV and say uh, she committed suicide. I mean, these are the, the, the same tactics, the same um, playbook that the regime used in 2009 uh, in those protests over a rigged election. This time, this feels different hmm. because the message is, is, is bigger. It's, it's women's rights. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, encompassing uh, Iran. It's uh, minorities that are coming out. It's uh, labor strikes. So uh, we are in a slightly different time than, than 2009. Um, and uh, I, I really don't, don't think that the regime has... Uh, an idea how to respond in a way that would silence uh, these protests, except 
you know, a crackdown. Joyce, when you say when you say it feels different this time, I'm hoping you can pull on that thread for us a bit and and explain more what about it feels different. Is it the the people who are protesting? Is it the fact that the protests haven't lost pressure or, or power or is it something else? Exactly. I mean, when this first started, many anticipated that this would be, you know, a few days and the protesters would go home, that it's it would be limited to urban areas, to Tehran, to the big cities. But it's not. And it's it's a diverse movement. Uh, you know, we're seeing markets and bazaars uh, go on strike uh, in, in Iran. We're seeing the Kurdish areas protesting. We're seeing the Arab areas protesting. Uh, Protesting. This is coming also on the heels of, uh, you know, economic stagnation in Iran. Uh, the political talks on the nuclear front are also stuck. So this is just uh, much more uh, added pressure on uh, on the regime. And uh, it truly looks like a regressive government oppressing uh, its women, whereas in 2009 it was just over erect uh, election. Uh, so at the same time, uh, Jen, I want to caution that there hasn't been cracks within the Iranian regime. Mm-hmm. It's still unified. It's holding strong. So this is not like the Arab Spring. This is not like what we've seen in Syria or uh, Egypt, um, you know, in 20, 2011 and 2012. But but there is definitely, um, you know, this is definitely a movement that is not stopping. They're not going home. And uh, uh, whether the regime changes its hijab uh, policy, strikes it down, and it would be going against one of its main pillars of the revolution. Or, um, you know, the White House said this week it might seek help from Russia in suppressing uh, the protesters. This will determine uh, what's next mm. uh, for the, for this movement. Well, on Wednesday in Iran, an attack on a Shia Muslim shrine killed 13 people in the southern city of Shiraz. Islamic State has claimed responsibility. What more do we know about that attack, Joyce? That attack is also very alarming, uh, Jen, because it strikes deep in Iran. It's uh, the first attack to be claimed by ISIS since 2018 inside Iran. The third as a whole for the terror group in in, in Iran. Uh, I mean, looking at it, the, the scenes were very uh, bloody. Uh, the At least 15 were killed, according to state media. But more broadly, it just it comes to highlight the fragility and uncertainty of everything we're seeing in Iran uh, right now. Um, the regime, I mean, today, uh, President uh, Raisi is trying to use the, to use the, uh, the attack to say, to blame the protesters and saying they're dividing the country and making it less secure. But I don't think that narrative is, is working. Uh, what we're seeing is deep uh, distrust between the public and uh, the Iranian regime. Um, and it doesn't seem like, uh, it's it's unlikely that terror attacks uh, by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or others will silence uh, the protests. But more broadly to Jen, um, I think this is coming on the heels of resurgence of ISIS in places like Syria, like Iraq, and the, the growing ability 
to to attack deep in, in, in these countries, deep within Iran? Are we returning to the pre-2014 uh, years, um, you know, when power vacuums, sectarian divide and conflict led to take over by ISIS over, you know, these, these cities? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, they're definitely very much operational and they're definitely uh, surging in their uh, brutal uh, terrorism across the region. Well, I also want to check in on a maritime demarcation deal that was finalized between the Lebanese and Israeli leaders on Thursday. The U.S. brokered the agreement, and the accord brings a measure of accommodation between the states as they both eye offshore energy exploration. David, what's in this deal, and why are both the Israeli and Lebanese governments claiming it as an achievement? Well, um, it's it's about territory and sea, and that's you know that's always symbolic and important. But this particular bit of sea also has some gas fields. One uh, confirmed gas field that's uh, in Israeli waters, and one field that uh, is is likely to have quite a lot of gas in it, which straddles uh, the two countries' waters. And this was a triangle of sea. If you imagine a kind of narrow triangle of sea with a point on the shore, sort of fanning out as it goes out to sea between the maritime territories of Lebanon and Israel. Remember, these are two countries that are still technically at war. And so this was quite a diplomatic struggle uh, to get this agreement. And it involved not just the kind of the, the always important question of territory, but also how do you divide up the gas? And so uh, you saw Hezbollah, one of the most important uh, parties and factions in Lebanon, actually threatening to attack Israel if Israel started to extract gas uh, from its gas field, the Karish gas field, before an agreement was signed. Now, you're seeing, interestingly, this is tying into Israeli politics because it's Israeli politics. And so that always means there's a contentious election coming. And indeed, there is a contentious election coming. And the current prime minister, Yair Lapid, is saying, look, this is a tremendous diplomatic achievement. Uh, It unlocks uh, potentially billions of dollars in revenues from this gas field because Israel plans to sell uh, gas to Europe to try and make up for some of the gas that Europe doesn't want to buy from Russia. But his arch rival, Benjamin Netanyahu, who wants to take back the prime ministership, he's currently in opposition. He is saying that this agreement is illegal and he will not be bound by it. And so you're seeing not just kind of, yes, it's a diplomatic achievement, but Israeli politics kind of rearing its head, added on to Lebanese politics uh, on that side. Well, turning back to Lebanon, it's still reeling from three years of economic meltdown, and it's now facing another political crisis as President Michael Aoun's mandate expires next week. Joyce, what's the most likely scenario here? Um, I mean, definitely more power vacuum in Lebanon. But if I may uh, just add to the to the uh, historic relevance of the Lebanese-Israeli uh, uh, agreement mediated by the U.S., Jen, this is the first agreement in peaceful circumstances ever between Lebanon and Israel since their founding in um, 1943, Lebanon, and 1948. Uh, for Israel. So uh, at the same time, this could not have happened without what you're mentioning now, uh, the economic crisis and the paralysis in in Lebanese uh, politics. Right. Lebanon's currency, it's lost more than 90 percent of its value. Lebanese citizens have seen their savings evaporate over the past three years. And you mentioned a potential power vacuum. How will that impact the billions of dollars in donor funding that's needed to bring Lebanon out of crisis? 
Exactly. So while this agreement could solve one outstanding issue in, in bringing investment to the to the maritime uh, uh, oil and gas exploration, this doesn't solve any of other uh, problems in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, I mean, the problem of corruption, nepotism, straight out mafia uh, run economy. These are things that the World Bank and the IMF are telling the Lebanese government you need to address before we send you any money. It so far has fallen on uh, deaf ears. There has been no reforms, uh, no uh, n- no incentives from from coming from Beirut to uh, to change uh, the way it does politics. As you said too, uh, the president's uh, the president's Michel Aoun term ends on Monday. So on top of not having uh, a new government after the parliamentary elections, we'll soon have no. Uh, president in in Lebanon starting on uh, Tuesday. The parliament has met four or five times, but there is no consensus around uh, one uh, one candidate. So this this uh, uh, this atmosphere, this environment of political paralysis, just always being in on the you know edge of the cliff or in crisis is just gonna continue until the. Um, you know, the Lebanese politicians agree on a consensus uh, candidate and, um, you know, vote for one. Uh, my conversations, you know, with Lebanese officials and American officials, we are going to enter a short to medium term uh, void in the presidency, but they expect that will only last a few months, so maybe till the beginning of next year. How will this impact the economy, the Lebanese people that are already suffering? Uh, mm. It will. And, and uh, Joyce, we'll, I mean, talk yeah. more about the humanitarian situation on in Lebanon, how the Lebanese people are, are surviving right now. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, my conversations with uh, the Lebanese, they're... They're hurting every day. I mean, people are not driving their cars. Uh, they're not going out as much because the the gas prices are just uh, just crazy high. Uh, the other things that people on a day to day basis are doing, they're not. They're they're not. They're almost all turned uh, vegetarian because they can't afford uh, the price of beef and uh, and chicken. So this is hurting uh, on every day. Uh, level we've we've seen we've covered uh, with you you know the robberies that have that have been happening at the bank uh, because average citizens are now you know resorting to their own uh, uh, methods to get their money out their deposits their retirement money that they've worked all their lives for is stuck in the bank and they can't get it out because of the uh, financial uh, policies and holds on that money that's in in U.S. dollar, so this is uh, a truly a very uh, desperate uh, situation in the country that Lebanon has not seen even during its war between 1975 and 1990. David, I just want to bring you in here briefly because after the the explosion at the port of Beirut, this was back in 2020, at over 200 deaths, billions of dollars in property damage. There was a lot of talk about sending aid to Lebanon. How has that played out? Well, the problem is that, uh, you know, there is, there, is a de- there is a desire to do well by the people of Lebanon, but it's that per- political paralysis, the nepotism, the corruption that Joyce describes so well and so expertly, that is a barrier 
not just a kind of individual aid from individual countries, uh, but also from things like the IMF. So one of the problems with having this power vacuum, if, uh, as Joyce says, on Tuesday, there is no new president, which seems likely. And there has been, you know, there have been similar vacuums where you haven't had a president uh, for many months before. But right now, the timing is awful because the International Monetary Fund, uh, which does have so, you know, the, the beginnings of a, of a serious agreement to unlock a lot of money to send into Lebanon uh, in exchange for reforms, that has to be signed off, apparently, by the, a sitting president. And the caretaker government taking on some of the powers of, of the presidency as well, there's an argument that it can't actually sign off on that IMF package, even if there was the political ability and will to enact the reforms the IMF wants. And so you're seeing in so many ways this utter dysfunction uh, mm-hmm. of the sectarian system in Lebanon, blocking even those bits of aid which are ready to go. We're talking to David Rennie. He's Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. We've also been hearing from Joyce Karam, Senior Correspondent for The National. David is sticking with us. Joyce, thanks again. Thank you. David, plenty of news from China this week. As expected, Chinese leader Xi Jinping secured a third term during the Communist Party's 20th National Congress. Less expected was the moment when former Chinese President Hu Jintao was escorted out of the party's closing ceremony. Now, in footage from the meeting... Hu Jintao seemed confused as he was pulled away from the podium where he sat next to Xi Jinping. What do we know about know about why he was taken out of the room? We have no idea, and we will never know, hmm. because uh, elite Chinese politics is a black box. But what we can say from what we saw is that it was, at a minimum, uh, an extremely symbolic moment where the kind of the coldness and the discipline with which nobody basically looked to help him if he was just ill and having a, uh, a an episode of perhaps dementia. Uh, as has been suggested, that the way that in order not to kind of upset this coronation uh, of the communist leader Xi Jinping, he was just kind of taken out against his will. And people who used to work for him, people who used to be extremely close to him, just kind of looked stonily straight ahead. And there was as if he didn't exist. Um, That kind of coldness is being taken here at a minimum uh, as an extraordinary symbol of the way that Xi Jinping has just completely dominated Chinese communist politics now. And I think it's worth pointing out that at the beginning of the week-long party congress, which ended with Xi Jinping securing not just really a a third term, but possibly to rule for life, because he chose no successor uh, that we can see who could replace him in five years' time. The beginning of this congress was was an incredibly important doctrine uh, document that is delivered every five years, which trashed the record of that former president taken out of the room and said that when Xi Jinping took over the Communist Party 10 years ago, it was weak, badly led, corrupt, and that he had to kind of seize it and, and make it more disciplined uh, and, and impose its authority. And so that was really trashing not just the record of the man being led out of the room, but also a lot of the people on that kind of top podium. And so in this kind of supremely orchestrated sort of communist stagecraft that we saw, like a kind of communist coronation, there were really violent political forces uh, flowing around. And so though we'll never know exactly why that one former leader was led out, that the, the, the staging was a kind of brutal display of who is absolutely in charge now, mm. and it is Xi Jinping. Well, meanwhile, the Dutch foreign ministry is looking into reports that China has set up two illegal police stations in the Netherlands. Dutch media reported that the police stations were being used to investigate and silence political dissidents in the country. Additionally, a Chinese police station in Dublin, Ireland, was forced to shut its doors. This came after a human rights group alleged the station was used to send hundreds of thousands of Chinese immigrants back to China, sometimes to face criminal charges. What's happening here? So the Chinese Communist Party believes that everyone Chinese around the whole world uh, should answer to Chinese law at all times. 
and it is willing to use uh, a whole range of things so that we have these essentially police stations which are called service stations and in theory they do things like renew your passport if you're Chinese but they also boast uh, within China about the fact that they crack down on illegal activities they catch fugitives uh, there's a, there's an entire kind of industry of churning out kind of glossy police dramas and films movies about this thing called Operation Fox Hunt which is the mission of the Chinese is to go abroad and bring back fugitives now this is always dressed up inside China where I am as you know, these are fraudsters. These are people who've stolen money. These are corrupt officials. But in many cases, there are also people who have political problems with the government. And it's not just, and, and these are big numbers. I mean, the, the Chinese government themselves have boasted about 230,000 people uh, in, in one year to this summer, uh, from April 2021 to July 2022. 230,000 Chinese nationals were persuaded to return to China. We know from umpteen amounts of evidence that this basically involves threats to their families, threats to them that something will happen to their families and it's not just criminals one of the really tragic things is a fantastic piece of good news is that hundreds of thousands of chinese students still study overseas in places like the us or in europe or in australia but if they start talking about the communist parties uh in a way that is uh, not in the party's interests uh in a, you know in a, in a lecture theater or in a college classroom in the united states they get reported by their fellow chinese students and then their parents get a call or a visit from the police here in China. And they say, your, your kid, your daughter, your son is saying dumb stuff in America. You need to shut them up or they're going to get into a lot of trouble. So this really scary idea that if you are Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party owns you and what you say and what you think, no matter where you live. Well, this week in the U.S., the Department of Justice unsealed charges in several criminal cases involving Chinese intelligence officers. The DOJ charged two Chinese intelligence officers with trying to obstruct a criminal justice investigation of Chinese tech giant Huawei. The defendants are charged with paying thousands to a U.S. official they thought they'd recruited as an asset, but who was a double agent working for the DOJ. And in a separate case, the Justice Department charged seven Chinese nationals over a plot to intimidate and force a U.S. resident to return to China. And that case is related to what you mentioned, David, China's Operation Fox Hunt. Uh, More details were made public on Monday by U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. The defendants threatened the victim, saying that, quote, coming back and turning herself in is the only way out. And they made clear that their harassment would not stop until the victim returned to China. As these cases demonstrate The government of China sought to interfere with the rights and freedoms of individuals in the United States and to undermine our judicial system that protects those rights. They did not succeed. Briefly, David, what do these cases tell us about how the U.S. is approaching the problem of Chinese intelligence operations within the country? Well, the FBI have said uh, for many years now that uh, China is becoming one of their largest threats. They open a new investigation every day. But there's a real there's a real dilemma here, Jen, that on the one hand, Chinese intelligence agents are just hugely active, uh, bullying people to come home, going after sort of business secrets, uh, trying to steal uh, industrial espionage, but also going after dissidents, going after students. And that's a really serious problem that needs to be dealt with. But if you deal with it clumsily, if you deal with it the wrong way, and there's a, a, a consensus that this was done clumsily under the Trump administration, for example, a thing called the China Initiative, which left a lot of Chinese academics working quite happily and innocently in the United States, feeling that they were under suspicion just for being Chinese, left a lot of Chinese undergraduates feeling that they were under suspicion just for being Chinese. And this is the heartbreaking dilemma that the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to treat all Chinese overseas as agents of China 
serving the motherland, no matter where they live. It puts a giant target and a cloud of suspicion over everyone Chinese around the world. And this is threatening to drive Chinese out of the West because they feel unwelcome and suspected. And so it's a real tragedy because if we if we don't have these bridges between these two uh, countries, the US and China or the West and China, uh, then, you know, with the governments basically not talking at the moment, if we can't have people to people bridges, if we can't have students learning about the West by going to American campuses, then we are really headed into a very, very dangerous confrontation. Let's bring one more voice into the conversation, Maurizio Savarese. He's an AP correspondent in Brazil, and he joins us from Sao Paulo. Mauricio is the author of Dilma's Downfall, the impeachment of Brazil's first woman president, and the pathway to power for Jair Bolsonaro's far right. Mauricio, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So on Sunday, Brazilians go to the polls in a second round of voting for a new president. In the running, leftist former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, popularly known as Lula, and then the far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And as decision day comes closer, Brazilians struggle with high inflation and rising poverty. Mauricio, we've talked before, this election has been polarizing. It's been called the most important in Brazil's history. What has the past month been like since that first round of voting on October 2nd? Well, the first round of voting showed that the difference between uh, former President Lula and President Bolsonaro was a little slimmer than the polls had predicted. So there was a lot of criticism to polls that underestimated President Bolsonaro. Uh, but now in the runoff, it seems that the, vo- the vote hasn't really moved much. Uh, former President Lula seems to have an upper hand for some Sunday's election, not by wide margins, but uh, for some comfortable margins, I would say, uh, of 5 to 6%. Uh, at least according to the most recent polls that now seem to be uh, in a better position to, to, to gauge the support for both candidates. There's been a lot of disinformation, a lot of personal attacks, a lot of uh, threats to postpone the election from Bolsonaro allies. But uh, at least so far, it appears we'll, we'll have a nice vote on su- voting day on Sunday uh, and that uh, it's going to end with a count and a winner that is going to be uh, out about 8 p.m., which is really quick, uh, only three hours after the polls close. Uh, The doubt is on whether President Bolsonaro will concede if he loses uh, or not. Where are each of the candidates finding their core supporter? Well, former President Lula is basically talking to poor voters, uh, those uh, with income of about $600 a month. Uh, They've been staunch supporters since his time in office between 2003 and 2010. Uh, They've been supporting him this time because of uh, threats that uh, many Brazilians see in Bolsonaro presidency to to the country's democracy. There's been a growing support in the middle class of people who uh, had never voted for the Workers' Party in their life. Uh, That's the case of former President Fernando Henrique Cardoso. That's the case for some agribusiness uh, spokespeople like Senator uh, uh, Simone Tebet, who finished third in the first round of voting with 4%, and many others that are really surprising Brazilians, people that were very vocally anti-Workers' Party. Now they seem to be very vocally anti-Bolsonaro. And the president uh, is trying to bridge that support, to bridge that gap by reaching out to countryside voters who approve his policies for rural Brazilians. Uh, There's also a lot of support from evangelicals who believe they're in a sort of a holy war against the left and see some threat of communism in Brazil, although that's uh, clearly unfounded if you consider the terms of the the Silva's presidency uh, in the past. 
and he's also had a lot of support uh, from uh, gun, uh, pro-gun uh, Brazilians, others that are really conservative and Christian, Christian values. And we'll see on Sunday whether he's man he manages to change the course of the direction so far. His last big chance could be tonight at the TV Global debate, and, and TV Global is the most, it reaches basically everyone in Brazil. Uh, there's going to be a lot of attention. Tens of millions of people will be watching. Uh, but as we say it here, he has to really score 4-0 against former President Lula to win the election as if this was a soccer match. And President Lula uh, will be happy with a new, new result. Well, this round, the bellwether states are more important than ever. In the southeast, in Minas Gerais, it's Brazil's second most popular populous state. It's become ground zero for both candidates. Why is that region so important? Well, I was there just a couple of weeks ago precisely for that reason. And uh, Minas Gerais always points to the presidency. And uh, the, the result in the first round was basically the same. 48% for President Lula, 43% for Bolsonaro. And uh, we see that uh, Minas Gerais has a, a bit of every demographic in Brazil's uh, in Brazil's uh, colors. Uh, we have as many whites, as many blacks, as many native Brazilians, as many women, as many men. It's, it's, it's really a mirror of Brazil in many ways. And uh, of course, there's a lot of votes there too, uh, especially in the poor region of the Jequitinhonha Valley up the north, which is where we went. We went there to talk to Brazilians that are really desperate. Uh, some of them are, are, are living in very, very poor conditions, no running water, no food for weeks. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, food but noodles, which is mm. basically what they can get. And they seem to be supporting President Lula. They didn't uh, change to President Bolsonaro, despite uh, hefty uh, handouts that ha he has paid this year uh, of about uh, $200, $300, uh, which, is, which is a lot of money for these families. But still, they trust, they apparently trust Lula to continue with these policies in the future and not as much in President Bolsonaro. You mentioned misinformation and disinformation being a major part of this election with, with both sides accusing each other of spreading it. But there's also been this ongoing concern about whether or not Bolsonaro in particular will accept the election results. What are you watching there? Well, the latest is that President Bolsonaro is complaining about free airtime he was expected to have in many radio uh, radio stations in the northeastern countryside, and, and, and the, north, the northeastern countryside is a stronghold for President Lula. And uh, apparently, he's he's taking that complaint to the electoral court, which initially tossed it, but he's planning to insist. And we don't know whether that's a part of the, this, the the narrative of not conceding the election because he didn't have as much free time to speak to voters in the countryside as as Lula did. Uh, we, we his one of his sons, uh, Eduardo, uh, openly talked yesterday about postponing the election, which is something that uh, we didn't see any ministers, government ministers, taking seriously, any top leaders taking seriously. But um, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow after the debate tonight. We'll have polls tomorrow, which is not really. Uh, a trend in many other uh, democratic nations that you have polls published 24 hours before uh, the vote begins. Uh, and those those polls might also suggest that Bolsonaro might not win the election and that there's no undecided voters for him to pick on. And that's um, that's that that could drive part of the narrative to this problem with the with the, with the radio stations, which, by the way, the, the electoral court just said it's it's unfounded and mm -hmm. the complaint is not really something that is on the courts to decide. It's for campaigns to surveil. And if that was the case, Bolsonaro's campaign failed. Well, really helpful analysis there, Maurizio. David, in just a sentence or two, what are you taking away from this election? 
Well, it's it's an election that matters to the whole world, not least because uh, the the fate of the Amazon rainforest uh, hangs on this. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro has allowed uh, you know the destruction of the forest to continue incredibly accelerated recent, and and also just another popular populist strongman. Uh, and I think so. Lula coming back for all his many flaws would be a huge leap. Well, we're out of time for today. Our thanks to our guests, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Mauricio Savaretze. He's an AP correspondent in Brazil. Thanks to you both. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.